Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your word. Thank you that we can gather today with your people and have it read. Father, it's such an enormous blessing and privilege just to be here. And Father, that is a privilege that I hope none of us ever take for granted as we enter into this this season where we begin to gather together again. Father, I pray now for the help of your spirit in preaching your word. Help me proclaim your word with power. And I pray that your spirit would help us receive your word with faith, with joy, with humility. Father, we want your word to produce an abundantly good harvest in us so that we would be formed and shaped more and more to look like the Lord Jesus. Would you help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this last week, we passed another grim marker that will go down our country's history books regarding the worldwide outbreak of COVID-19. 100,000 people in our own country have lost their lives. As a fact, we should grieve all of us together. However, as distressing and as depressing as the virus and all its social and economic aftermath has been, I do believe the coronavirus has made us face some things and ask some questions that have really been sanctifying for us as God's people. One of the things I remember early on, if you remember, uh, that was so overwhelming was how fast things changed for us, just in a matter of days. So many things uh, that felt so certain were now suddenly up in the air. Things that felt like a guarantee suddenly didn't seem like a guarantee anymore in a very short amount of time. We went within just a few days of not being able to go out and to uh, see our friends. Grocery stores became kind of crazy. We couldn't even come to church together. Um, so many things that we thought, again, were certain in a matter of days began to change very, very quickly for us. And in the beginning, back in March, we can remember how we weren't sure how long we were going to be where we were. We didn't know long how we were going to have to wait before we can meet together as a church. So the coronavirus has made us think about good, hard questions. Questions like these. What will still be true 1,000 years from now? What can we ultimately depend on in a world where things can really change very quickly for us? In a world where things are constantly changing? What will outlast the misery and the destruction of the fall and all its disastrous effects on our world? The answer to all these questions is really clear in the Bible. The answer to all of these things is the work and the character of the living God. And Psalm 103 is a great place for us to go, maybe one of the best places in the Bible, to find this succinct, beautifully written statement about who God is, His character, and what He has done for us as His people. Before we dive into Psalm 103, I want us to think just briefly together for a minute or two about uh, what exactly the Psalms are and why they matter for us as God's church. So what are the Psalms? The Psalms are God's definitive prayer and hymn book that he gave the church to teach us how to do pretty much everything. They teach us how to walk by faith in the real world where we as God's people, we have to face hard things like being afraid. We have to face being harmed by our enemies. We have to face what to do in the aftermath of our sin, how to repent and confess So the Psalms basically teach us what does it look like to live out our theology? What does it mean to trust God in all the nitty 
gritty, painful circumstances of life. This is exactly the way Jesus lived and prayed the Psalms himself. We can remember his final words before he gave up his life for us on the cross were the Psalms, Psalm 22. Another way we can understand the Psalms is that the Psalms are God's means of teaching us how to speak to Him. The Psalms are God's means of teaching us how to speak to Him. So one of the things I love to watch my children do is when they learn how to talk. And when the older ones teach the younger ones how to first speak words, it's a lot of fun to watch them do this. They all find great delight, especially in getting our youngest son, who's about two and a half now, to say various things around the house. Well, I'll go up to him and let's say, Henry, say pizza. And he says a word that approximates the word pizza, and we delight in this. We love to watch him learn how to speak the words back to us that we give him to say. So in a similar way, the Psalms work the same way. Because God delights um, in hearing us learn how to speak back to him the words that he gives us to say. This is exactly what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and pastor who was murdered by the Nazis in World War II, says about the Psalms. He's got this great little book on the Psalms. Listen to what he says. He writes, quote, The child learns to speak because his father speaks to him. He learns the speech of his father, so we learn to speak to God because God has spoken to us and speaks to us. By means of the speech of the Father in heaven, his children learn to speak with him. Repeating God's own words after him, we begin to pray to him. End quote. So by speaking and praying God's words back to him, we're also growing up. We're maturing in our faith. Again, back to my son Henry. We say to Henry, you have to say, help please. You can't just scream in frustration every time you want something. So Henry will say this, and we say, good words, Henry, when he speaks back to us these words we've given him to say. And when Henry does this, what is he doing? He's growing up. He's maturing. He's learning what it means to be a human being made in God's image. So in a similar way, we grow up. We mature when we learn how to speak God's words back to him and to allow his words to uh, help us to interpret everything in our lives and make sense of everything in life. Finally, the last thing I want us to think about together that the Psalms are, that the Psalms are helping us learn how to give meaning through our lives, um, to our lives through the words our Heavenly Father gives us. The Psalms help us interpret everything that happens in life. So again, in our house, we don't just teach words in the abstract. We don't just say random words to Henry, like pizza, uh, in an abstract way. No, we let him pick up the slice and cram it into his mouth. And as he does this, we're telling him what this experience means. And so it is with the Psalms. When we come together on Sunday, we don't just mindlessly sing or recite Psalm 51 to pick just one example. Instead, these words give meaning to our experience of what do we do when we sin. How do we confess? How do we turn back to God in the aftermath of our sins so that we can be restored to Him through confession and repentance? God wants us to have His words on our lips as we speak to Him about everything in life. Your darkest sins, your deepest struggles, the places of your greatest pain, and everything else. 
In the Psalms, God teaches us how to speak to Him about everything in life, whether it's what does it mean to worship Him? What does it mean to be afraid? What does it mean to feel sorrow? What does it mean to feel thanksgiving? So God gave us the Psalms in order to help us really face and name reality as it is, as He wants us to understand and interpret it. Okay, let's jump now into the passage we read a few minutes ago, Psalm 103. Let's talk about what we read here. So today we're going to get through this, just the first section of our passage in verses 1 through 14. And we can break up these verses really into two sections. In verses 1 through 7, you read statements about what God has done for His people. And then verses 8 through 14, you read statements about who God is, His character. So let's first now look at these verses we read in verses 1 through 7. Notice how our psalm starts? It starts with this call to worship. If we look closely at the whole psalm, we'll see that Psalm 103 really starts and it ends with this call to worship. And really, everything else in between the beginning and the ending gives us a variety of these spectacular reasons as to why. Why is He worthy of our worship? It's clear both Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 are really meant to go together in some way. Psalm 104 begins and ends with this exact same phrase we see at the beginning of Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is one of several places in the Psalter where we see that psalms, either two psalms or groups of psalms, are really meant to go together. They're connected in some way, either by phrase that gets repeated or by theme that runs throughout them. So David starts our psalm by declaring, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His benefits. David starts this psalm with a cry to proclaim God's value and worth with all of our being. And you get the feeling that David is just bursting at the seams and this exclamation of praise is welling up within him and spilling over through this call to worship. David mentions we're to bless or praise God's name, another way of saying that we are to praise Him. In the Bible, God's name is a metonym. It's something that's a substitute for His character and His being. So this is the same reason why we're commanded not to take the Lord's name in vain, because His name is really a substitute for His very character. So if you treat God's name as if it doesn't matter, what you're really saying is God Himself, His character, doesn't really matter. So the second half of verse 2 tells us to forget not all uh, His benefits. Throughout the Scriptures, especially the Psalms, we're commanded as God's people to remember. Remember who God is. Remember what He has done on our behalf. The Bible understands that we are weak people. We are frail people. And God understands that in the midst of our pain in life, very often, we're tempted to despair. We can be people who let ourselves give in to the temptation to let our suffering begin to define our entire story so that you really can't begin to see anything beyond your own pain. We can all easily rewrite the narrative of our lives so that we only see misery in our past and we cannot imagine that our present or our future could look any different. I once heard a preacher say this a long time ago, and it's always stuck with me. He said, we should not doubt in the dark what we know to be true in the light. I really like that. We should not doubt in the dark what we know to be true in the light. So what do we do? What do we do when the lights go out in our lives? When failure or loss 
or sin or disappointment overwhelm us. God says to remember, remember in these moments what is true. Remember what He has done. To cling to the truth about who He is and how He promises to do. What He promises to do will never change for you, no matter how difficult or painful your circumstances. So David, in verses 3-5 through in our psalm, tells us to remember who God is. In these verses, he gives us five benefits that God provides for his people that we ought to remember. Look at what he says. He says we are to remember that God is the one who forgives all our iniquities. He heals all our diseases, redeems our lives from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. And he says he's the one who satisfies us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. The common theme that really runs throughout all these, something we're going to unpack in just a second, is God's gracious love and goodness given to us to deal with our sins and our weaknesses. This phrase, steadfast love, is really the best summary of all the different facets of these benefits that David mentions. And you know that David wants to put a a spotlight on God's steadfast love just by the sheer number of times he uses this phrase in our psalm. Four times he's going to mention God's steadfast love. In verse 4 and verse 8, verse 11 and verse 17. People of God, God sees your sin, all of your sin, much better than you do. And instead of condemning you, He has forgiven it in Christ. He sees all of your weaknesses. Instead of crushing them, He has promised to give you His love and His mercy and His renewing strength. When we remember these things, what should again overwhelm us is God's goodness, something that should bring us deep satisfaction as David mentions verse 5. All these benefits reveal God's eternal commitment to do us good. This is what God would have us remember in the midst of the difficult times our society faces right now. In the midst of a pandemic where we are surrounded daily by conversations and nonstop headlines that are dominated by subjects like sickness and death and loss and fear, God would have us remember And cling to the promise of His steadfast love and goodness that will never change. It will never fail. People of God, our world needs to hear some good news right now. Like never before. And there really is no better news we could remember and proclaim in these times than the truth about God's gracious love. His undeserved love given to His people. In verses 6 through 7, David mentions the specifics of what God's love has looked looked like acted out in history, the mighty acts that God has done in the past on behalf of his people. He mentions how the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He says he's made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So the people of Israel, really the greatest expression of the gospel of grace up to the time of David was God's deliverance of his people from Egypt in the great Exodus. When I think about the story of of Exodus, there's so many scenes that I love, but one that stands out to me that I love the most is when the Egyptians have let the Israelites go after the terrible tenth plague of the death of the firstborn. Do you remember this this scene? The Israelites leave Egypt and they draw near to the Red Sea and Pharaoh changes his mind. He decides he's going to send his army after the Israelites. We're told that when the Israelites see the approaching Egyptian army, They're completely terrified. 
And do you remember what they say next to Moses? What's so incredibly remarkable is their complete lack of faith. They turn on Moses. They're filled with anger towards him. They ask him these rhetorical questions. Have you just brought us out of Egypt to die here in the desert? It's pretty astounding, right? Think about the fact that the Israelites in the previous several days have seen God bring about massive and economic social destruction to one of the global region's superpowers. The Israelites just days previously, for the last several days, they've seen God turn rivers into blood and rain down fire and hail from the sky. They were witnesses to one of the greatest displays of God's power in the history of the world. But when they face danger one more time, they forget all of it. They've forgotten who God is. They've forgotten what He has just done, like our psalm warns us against. And instead of a decision to trust God once again, they're consumed with fear and despair and anger. That story feels pretty familiar, doesn't it? Thousands of years separate us from the children of Israel in the time of Moses, but our hearts really function the same way, don't they? All of us have seen God do incredible things in our lives, but the first sign of danger or harm, fear and despair and anger are usually our go-to responses. Our memory of God's character and His mighty acts for us are often very, very short-lived. And do you remember what Moses says to the Israelites as they stand completely terrified with the Red Sea at their backs and the Egyptian army in front of them? He's going to answer their faithless angry accusations by basically saying, just be quiet. Stand firm. Don't be afraid. He says, the Lord will fight for you. And then God makes known His ways and acts like verse 7 in our psalm mentions by making a path through the sea and He completely destroys the Egyptian army as we know. So what you see highlighted in God's fierce demonstration of His power and protection in the Exodus story is His patient, gracious love. In the face of the Israelites' utter unbelief and their despair and their anger, He saves them. He delivers them from their enemies. He clearly gave them better than they deserved. What we see in the story and throughout the Scriptures is that God's acts and His character, they go hand in hand. God's acts and history reveal His character, and His character has given us concrete meaning uh, through His mighty acts. And we see the same kind of thing here in our psalm. David's going to pivot in verse 8 now to giving us these beautiful descriptions of God's character after mentioning his acts in history that we must not forget. So what else does David say? Look at what he says in verse 8. He gives us this description of God that really repeats um, who God himself has proclaimed him to be in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. David goes on to mention in verse 9 and 10 that God will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He says He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Again, what David highlights here is God's character and His gracious goodness, His love shown to weak, sinful people. Unlike us, David says that the dominant note that God plays before His people is not anger and judgment, in the face of our sins and weaknesses, but rather undeserved favor. The word chide here in verse 9 has to do with the disputes that usually come before a court of law. 
I think what stands out in verses 8 through 10 is God's overwhelming display of His patient forbearance in the face of His people's sins. God's forbearance doesn't mean that He is apathetic towards sin, but that He's committed to loving us and graciously doing us good even in the face of your sins and your failures. Forbearance is really about persevering love, a love that takes blows and absorbs someone's sin without giving up. And when I think about this, I'm overwhelmed by the contrast between who God is and how often uh, we act as, as human beings. How do we usually treat other sinners? Do you know how I usually treat sinners? Uh, even the ones I love the most, when they do something sinful or foolish, I inwardly, or sometimes if I'm fresher enough, I outwardly just sigh. Like a Napoleon Dynamite sigh. I groan. And I do this usually with the people even that I love and care about the most. In these moments, I just feel like inwardly checking out, just emotionally not being there. Or I deal with somebody else's sin in a way that clearly communicates, I'm going to help you, but I'm going to be really frustrated about it. I'm going to make it really clear that deep down, I just wish you would go away. You'd stop annoying me. It's really easy to get into the habit in our marriages and our families of treating our sins and our weaknesses like this. But the Bible says God never does this. He never treats your sin that way. He's gracious in dealing with your sin. He's patient with your sin. He's kind in the face of it. His love and care abound more than His anger. In the face of our sins, God is delightfully unfair to me in the face of my selfish behavior. He constantly is giving me better than I deserve, and my sin can never cancel out His love and His favor for me. And to love other sinners in this way that reflects God is really hard. It's relationally and emotionally costly for us. But what we have to see is this is a cost that we, we have to pay. God is calling you to pay on a daily basis. And it's a cost that you're able to give because you've been loved so well by God. David continues on in verses 11 through 13. Again, he mentions God's steadfast love. He gives us this beautiful poetic image in verse 11 of God's love for his people being something that is bigger than the space between the stars and the earth. David is obviously speaking to us in a pre-scientific view, but a view that still accurately understands the great distance between the stars and the earth. And it's amazing you think about our understanding of science really only amplifies the point here that David is trying to make when we consider the vast, enormous distance between the earth and the stars in the sky. Consider that modern astronomy tells us the closest star to us is about four light years away. A light year being the space that light's going to cover if it moves continuously for one entire year. Consider that a single light year is about 5.88 trillion miles. So that means the space between the closest star, Proxima Centauri, and the Earth is about 20 trillion miles. Think about that. So the point of all this that the Bible is telling us is that the scale of God's love is something that's difficult to even begin to fathom. This is one of several places in the Bible where God's love is described as something that is beyond our ability to fully even grasp or comprehend. 
Paul says the same kind of thing in, in, to the Ephesian church. When he prays that they would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The idea here is that God's love in Jesus is something that you'll never begin to fully comprehend because of its inexhaustible depths. Our language and our theology simply fail to accurately capture the meaning of God's love for his people. In verse 12, David again gives us another moving poetic image to describe this love when he says that God has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. This statement is really about the efficacy of God's atoning work as our priest, how he has forever removed the guilt of our sin from us. The image of this verse is very simple, but I think it's really profound. The just as the east and west can never connect, so the just condemnation of our sin can never land on us because of God's gracious, forgiving love. All right, there's plenty more we could say about this psalm, but for the sake of time today, we're going to have to move on and stop here, verse 12. And I'm going to finish by giving us just two concluding thoughts um, about our psalm that we see. First, I want us to see if this psalm really finds its ultimate, deepest meaning in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus demonstrated for us in living color everything we've just said this morning about the work and the character of God. God has delivered his righteousness to his people in the last great exodus enacted in Jesus' death and resurrection. In Jesus' death, God has dealt his judgment in this decisive way to our greatest enemies to Satan and sin and death. And because we belong to Jesus and have experienced his triumph over sin and death, we've been set free from the power of sin so that we're no longer slaves. Just like the Israelites were set free, you have been set free from the tyrannical influence of sin and death. Everything Jesus said and did in his earthly ministry demonstrate demonstrate the fact that God is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Think about the fact that Jesus' cross is God's ultimate assurance that he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor repaid us according to our iniquities. And because God condemned my sins in Jesus' death, I can know for sure now there's no condemnation left for you for your sins. That the voice of judgment and condemnation that we all feel from Satan in our flesh, it's attempting to connect two things that the Bible says never belong together. God's judgment and ourselves. A task as impossible as joining together the East and the West. In Jesus, God has revealed his steadfast love in a world to the world in a way that people could see and hear and touch. The love of God greater than the space between heaven and earth was made flesh in Christ in a way that brought heaven to earth. The New Testament, especially the Apostle John, tells us the gospel message is about God's people being brought into this eternal love between the Father and the Son. Jesus says to us that just as the Father has loved Him, so He loves us. And it's really the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us into this perfect, loving relationship between the Father and the Son. So we experience the everlasting love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. Paul says this more or less in Romans when he says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The second and final thing I want us to think about 
uh, in our passage is how the steadfast love of God in Christ really does have the ability to transform daily life for us. Sinners receiving God's unmerited love, it's the heart of the gospel message. And this message not only secures our future, but it gives shape to how we're to live right now, this week in the present. The promise of God's gracious love for us, it's our greatest fuel to empower us to do everything in the Christian life, especially the hardest parts of the Christian life. People of God, we will only begin to have the strength to love your spouse or your children or to love your neighbor as yourself when you trust by faith that we have been and will forever continue to be loved by the living, everlasting God. One of those beautifully powerful things about the love of God is its transforming effect on the people who receive it. It's a glorious truth that sinners who receive love are made more lovely. This is put so well by the writer Samuel Crossman in the great hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Trusting by faith and growing in the assurance of God's love for us, this is what will transform us more and more into the people we are created to be in Jesus. And giving that kind of love to other broken people in your life is how God will transform people in a profound way. And the sad reality is that so often we don't live this way, do we? Instead, we live like beggars or orphans or outcasts who are forsaken, who are unlovable. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth about our status as God's beloved children. We can begin to listen to the subtle lies of Satan who wants us to interpret our pain as another sign that God is against you. That he really isn't there or he doesn't really love and care about you. We are, trust, we are tempted to trust the demonic voice that speaks to us in our crippling guilt and shame, telling you God can never love you because of what you've done, because of the evil things uh, you've committed. As Christians, we will have the strength to fight off all the attacks of Satan and evil by arming ourselves with this truth about God's eternal love for us. God's love is our compass that keeps us from getting lost. It's our spiritual lighthouse that will keep us safe from all the spiritual dangers so that you can be led safely home. Listen, we can believe a lot of good and correct things uh, theologically, but those things will ultimately have very little effect on your life unless you trust the truth about God's eternal love for you in Jesus a love that will never let you go, an otherworldly love that is designed to make our world more and more like heaven. People of God, do you believe this? Do you believe that the most powerful truth we will understand, the truth that has the power to regenerate our disfigured world is a simple truth that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your kindness towards us in Christ. And I pray, Father, through the power of your Spirit, as we remember the work of the Spirit today, you would overwhelm us with a fresh understanding, a fresh experience of how we are loved in Jesus, even in the face of our sins and our weaknesses. Father, would you bless us 
through the remainder of our service. Would you help us feast on you? Would you satisfy us with your goodness like you promised in your word? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.